Are you cop enough to defend the streets of Lytton, California? Well, let's find out with Police Quest, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 42 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, here to talk to you once again about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh, show's a week late. Uh, I, I I will admit that right off the top, unfortunately, uh, as people on the uh, the Facebook group and, uh, and Twitter may have heard, uh, there was unfortunately a death in the family, so uh, we had to kind of do some emergency travel down to the U.S. and, uh, you know, take care of that kind of thing and uh, attend some ceremonies and, and funeral and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, uh, not a great uh, not not a great reason to, uh, well, I guess it's a valid reason to uh, delay the podcast, but uh, not a very fun one. But all that aside, winter's here, Christmas is coming, and... Um, you know, I'm starting to get to get my skis ready. I'm starting to schedule some ski days to get out there and, and hit the slopes and uh, tool around. It's it dumped snow, I guess, last weekend for the first time here in Toronto, and um, now we're basically buried in it. It's been snowing pretty steadily off and on throughout uh, over the past two weeks, and um, I love it. I enjoy the winter. I enjoy the snow. I think I mentioned that quite a few times before. So yeah, let's. Uh, we got a really, really, really big show this week. I'm really excited to get to it. So uh, let's get on to the news. So since we've got a lot to say, just a few quick news items. So um, if you remember way back, kind of around the, the dawn of the show, over you know a year and a half, almost two years ago, uh, I talked about the Wasteland Two Kickstarter. Well, the game is now available for purchase via Steam Early Access. Uh, if anyone's checked it out, feel free to drop me a note on the current state of the game. I believe the Wasteland Kickstarter was kind of uh, either I missed out on it or it uh, it took place before I kind of got on the whole Kickstarter bandwagon because I feel like this is one I, I would have backed at the time, but uh, I never actually got around to it. So if anyone has anything to say or if anyone's picking it up or anything like that, let us know what it looks like. I mean, it's still early access. It's probably a very early beta or uh, even a, a very late alpha. So... Um, yeah, love to know. Next, the GOG Winter Sale. That's good old games. So the GOG Winter Sale has been running uh, for the past little while. I think the past the past two weeks. Uh, it's basically over now. I think there's, I checked today and there were about 18 hours left, which means now there's probably 14 or 15 hours left. And, uh, you know, there were lots of great deals to be had on uh, on newer games, newer indie titles and older games. I picked up a couple of things. I know a lot of you have as well. Uh, so that was, that was really great. Now, rumor has it that the big steam winter sale will be starting up in the next few days. So there's going to be even more deals to be had there too. I'm keeping my eye on, uh, on the XCOM expansion, maybe, uh, civilization five, brave new world, that expansion. And, uh, you know, just, uh, anything else that tickles my fancy. Maybe I'll pick up a few more things to give away on the show. Who knows? But, uh, you know, these steam sales are, are always a good time. In Tex Murphy news, uh, a new Tesla effect trailer is out. Uh, we get some more looks at uh, at the CGI in the game, in addition to more of the actors and the virtual sets. And honestly, this time around, it's it's looking a lot better than uh, than I thought it looked the last time a trailer came out. Uh, so I wasn't super into uh, into this Kickstarter when uh, when it was going on, probably because it was going on at the same time as the Space Quest. Yeah. Space Quest. Kickstarter, and I was kind of on board with that one, but uh, you know, I'm getting more and more interested in to uh, to see what this game is all about upon release, and uh, I will link that trailer in the show notes. You can see it in the Facebook group, or uh, or just Google it. It's, uh, it's looking pretty cool. Finally, in uh, Star Wars news, a new game called Star Wars Attack Squadrons has been teased over at StarWars.com. Supposedly, or at least according to their description, it's going to be a free-to-play multiplayer space combat game. Now, the trailer doesn't give us much, so I really don't have much more to say. You just basically see a lot of uh, X-Wings and TIE Fighters and stuff, uh, dogfighting. 
I'm thinking it will either be an online takeoff of the Star Wars miniatures tabletop game or something a little bit more arcadey. What I'd really love is if it was a remake of X-Wing or TIE Fighter or something like that. I definitely don't think they're going the space sim route, but uh, either way, I'll be keeping my eye on things as I always do. Okay, we've got a couple of emails before we roll into things. And first, we have an email from someone whose name I didn't write down. And I believe it is from... Ah, Brian. It is from Brian. Brian writes, Joe, when I mentioned that I bought the seventh guest for the iPad, you asked if I could review it here. So here are my thoughts. I apologize for the length, but there are several things that I thought needed to be covered. Uh, The game is a straight port. No upscaling or remastering of any of the visuals or audio. This was fine for me. On a 10-inch iPad 1 screen, the visuals were still grainy, but not ugly. That is a testament to how amazing it looked for its time when it came out. It's only $4.99, which uh, for some is pricey for an iOS game, but it is a PC game on iOS. Because it is the exact game played on the PC, I will only discuss the iOS experience, not the game itself. First off, The game needs a cursor to scan around the scenes to get the various icons when you hover over different points. Their workaround for this on a touchscreen is pretty good. You hold your finger on the screen and the same cursor you saw on the PC appears above your finger so your finger doesn't obstruct it. As you slide your finger around the screen, the cursor moves around and when you release your finger, it selects whatever the cursor was on, not what your finger was on. It also lets you just tap the screen to select something if you don't need to scan around first. When tapping, it it selects exactly where your finger taps. The only problem is that if you tap too long, it selects above where you tapped, thinking you were scanning. They also added a magnifying glass feature. If you double tap and then hold on the second tap, then a square appears above your finger with a zoomed in view and the cursor in the center of the square. This is great for precise clicking during puzzles on the iPhone small screen, but I played on the iPad and never needed to use the zoom. A lot of classic games ported to mobile have an automatic quick save when the app is closed or left. This way, when you return to the game, uh, it lets you choose to resume right where you left off, which is crucial when you spend hours trying to solve a puzzle. To save, you have to do it the same way you do it on the PC. Go to the menu by by tapping on the upper left of the screen, which is never told to you. Tap save, tap a number, tap in a name for the save every time you save. Tap OK, and then you can finally quit. I finished the maze and then had to quit in the middle of the crypt puzzle, so I saved and closed it down. When I returned, I knew my progress on the crypt would be lost, but it turns out I had to do the sliding blocks puzzle and the frustrating maze all over again too. This is the only problem with the iOS port that really bothers me. They did remove three of the puzzles, the microscope, the knives, and the piano. The video sequences associated with the missing puzzles are still intact. According to the developer, Trilobite, uh, and this is a quote, The knife puzzle has been taken out because it is too small to be played effectively on the iPhone screen. And the other two were removed because they had quote-unquote outstanding technical issues. Uh, I've not played the PC version since I was a teen, so I don't recall the knife puzzle enough to know if uh, there was some obvious reason it wouldn't work on a small screen, even with the zoom feature. Joe, since you've played it recently, do you have any thoughts as to why it wouldn't work? Uh, Honestly, I don't don't know. That's the end of the email. Thank you. uh, Thank you, Brian. And... uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe that maybe it's a precision thing. It's quite possible that because uh, they didn't say it was because it was it wouldn't work on the iPad. They said it was because it was on the iPhone. So maybe it was. I, I suspect it's a precision issue, and it would have been too difficult to get things into the right places. But uh, honestly, I don't remember the knife puzzle right off the top of my head right now. So uh, if anyone else has an idea, I know a bunch of you guys played it. So um, hey. Let us know. Thank you so much for that review. Uh, I didn't get around to playing the iOS version. So when you mentioned to me an email that you, uh, or I think it was on Facebook or something like that, that uh, that you played the iOS version, I, I jumped at the chance to get a little review of it. So thank you again. Next, we have an email from Dennis. And Dennis writes, Hi, just got around to listening to your seventh guest show. Yes, I know it came out two weeks ago. And since I think it was my horrified reaction to the Kickstarter for a third game... Uh, that inspired you to do the show, I figured I would say something. I remember when the game came out. As someone who enjoys horror games, it was an immediate buy for me and I had high hopes for it. While I remember enjoying the game at the time, 
I really don't feel it has aged well. At the time, seeing full motion video on our screens was enough of a novelty to cover a lot of the game's rough spots. My main problem with the game is that the gameplay and story are completely disconnected from each other. The actual gameplay, the solving of the puzzles, has nothing to do with the horror theme beyond pictures of skulls on cakes or having to move coffins around instead of crates. They could have made a game about mountain climbing with the exact same puzzles where the puzzles had climbing themes and solving them let the climbers go further up the cliff, but I guess the seventh climber probably wouldn't have sold as well. Uh, Nothing about the puzzles themselves is particularly horrific. So that leaves the story, which, well, the less said about the quote-unquote story, the better. To be fair, sometimes the best horror comes from things that are left to the imagination, but so much of this one falls into that category, uh, it just comes off as a jumbled mess. The fact that you can get the story beats out of order doesn't help things. So I think the seventh guest should probably be thought of as a dinosaur, an important historical artifact, but one probably best observed from a distance. Uh, for a few other comments. First, you never made the obvious point that Stauff is an amagram of Faust. Second, you have meant you should have mentioned Trilobite's other two games. The first was Clandestini, uh, another puzzle game. This one was done using cell animation and actually had a coherent storyline. The other was Uncle Henry's Playhouse. This bizarre game was nothing but a collection of all the puzzles from the Seventh Guest, Eleventh Hour, and Clandestini plus one new puzzle. Uh, it has the dubious distinction of being one of the worst, if not the worst, selling computer games of all time. The game sold 27 copies in the US and 176 copies worldwide. No, there are no zeros missing from those numbers. 27 copies. I actually remember seeing it on a shelf at CompUSA and picking it up, realizing it was nothing except the puzzles from the games I had already had, putting it back down. I wonder how much it would be worth on eBay today if I had bought copy 28. Anyways, enjoy the cast and look forward to seeing what you look at next. Ever thought of looking at the Ultima series, Ultima 7 at least, with Shroud of the Avatar entering alpha testing, it might be interesting to look back at Richard Garriott's magnum opus. See you around the block, Dennis. Well, thank you, Dennis. Um, yeah, you know, there's there are there are there's always things that that I come across. Like I came across mentions of Uncle Henry's Playhouse and Clandestini and uh, other things like that. I didn't come across the uh, Stauff and Faust uh Anagram, though that makes a lot of sense now that now that I uh, I think about it, but uh, you know as usual I the shows I try to keep the shows around just around an hour and uh, unfortunately that means I can't mention I can't mention everything but that is true I, I read that uh, Uncle Henry's Playhouse was was one of the worst selling as you said if not the worst selling game of all time and that kind of led to uh, some of Trilobite's issues later on. So that's that for the uh, the pre-show, the pre-topic emails. Let's get on with things. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for the main event, the Police Quest series. Now, technically, Police Quest is a series of six games. For this show, I'm only going to be discussing the first four. I'm lumping the last two games in with the SWAT series, even though technically... They do belong to Police Quest. That aside, uh, the series was developed and published by Sierra Online, and the first game, Police Quest in Pursuit of the Death Angel, released in the year 1987. So as we do, let's talk genre. Police Quest is a Sierra adventure game. Now, we've seen quite a few of these already, so I won't dwell on this area too much. In an adventure game, you take on the role of the protagonist, you're given a quest early on in the game, and uh, you have to solve a series of puzzles to accomplish both the main goal and potentially other side quests to reach the game's conclusion. The story is generally fixed and is comparable to playing your way through a movie or a novel. Police Quest does differ in a few ways from the traditional adventure game tropes, but uh, we will get to that in a bit. Genre is done, so it is story time. Police Quest takes place in the fictional California town of Lytton. You are Sonny Bonds, a veteran police officer of the Lytton PD. Uh, You are currently serving on traffic duty. Uh, There isn't much of an intro. You're dropped immediately into the game and the story develops around you. In an early briefing, Sergeant Dooley, your direct superior, tells your shift that cocaine use among Lytton's teenagers is starting to get out of hand. There are also reports of a stolen 1983 Cadillac, which uh, you are all ordered to keep a lookout for on your patrols. Soon enough, Bonds is called to the scene of a car crash. 
Upon inspecting the scene, he quickly notices the deceased driver of the car didn't die in the crash, but from a gunshot wound to the head. This leads Sonny into an adventure into the narcotics division and the pursuit of one Jesse Baines, a.k.a. the Death Angel. For an early Sierra adventure, the story is definitely involved and does take quite a while to play out. As we'll see in the gameplay section, that's both a blessing and a curse. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, let's talk gameplay. So, despite what I just said, in many ways, Police Quest is a very standard Sierra AGI adventure. You begin the game in the main common area of Lytton Police Headquarters. Sonny looks suspiciously similar to Leisure Suit Larry or Roger Wilco wearing a police uniform. That is, it seems that the original AGI engine's human models were all pretty much the same aside from, you know, different clothing art and uh, hair color. So you use the arrow keys or a joystick to move Sonny around the screen. There's no mouse support in, uh, in this first game. To begin, we should probably go to the locker room, which is through the door on the bottom right. Walking through the doorway, you get into the locker room and uh, you make your way to your locker and you open it. This is when we encounter the text parser interface. So you need to open your locker. To do this, you approach a locker, you don't know which one is yours, and you type open locker. If you choose the wrong one, the game scolds you saying, this isn't your locker, this is someone else's locker, something like that. You know, it'll roll through a couple of responses until it repeats itself. Eventually, you find yours, it's the first one in the second row, and your locker opens. Now, in a normal Sierra adventure, this is how things go. You're basically thrust from situation to situation, solving puzzles as you go. See a thing you can pick up? You'd better take it, as you will probably need it. Save your game often, because you're likely to die. In a way, all these things are true of Police Quest. Where it differs, though is that in this game, you're not a knight, you're not a bumbling space janitor or a loser who's inept with women. You're a police officer, a real-life, honest-to-goodness, non-sci-fi, non-fantasy police officer. As much as Police Quest is an adventure game, it is also a fairly effective simulation of police procedures of the time. Now, the reason I say of the time is that certain things do stand out as being a product of police procedure of the late 80s. There were no cell phones, there were no breathalyzers in police cars, uh, things like that. So a lot of the things you do are kind of a more manual process, but again, this game was made in that time, so it really did reflect the procedures of the time and the training of the time. As an example, at one point, you pull over a drunk driver. To properly deal with him, you have to open up the game manual and follow proper procedure. The same when you approach a potentially dangerous speeder. If you don't call for backup, or you act too quickly, or you act too slowly, say goodbye to your life. Now, I'll discuss the technical aspects of this next point more in the next section, but of course I can't talk Police Quest without talking about the driving. You get around town by driving your police car as represented by a black and white rectangle. Uh, you drive it across a top-down map of Lytton. In one way, this is very, very cool. You can drive around anywhere you want, basically, on any road you want, turn on your lights and siren, pull over lawbreakers. You can do everything a traffic cop in his car should be able to do. Well, there's two issues with this theoretically awesome portion of the game. First, this is the part of the game that you'll find yourself in repeatedly while you're waiting for something to happen. That is, you often find yourself driving around the map aimlessly ostensibly on patrol until a timed event fires, which causes either a car around you to exhibit odd behavior, requiring you to pull it over, or you get a call from dispatch requesting your presence somewhere. This can take quite a few minutes, all of which make you think you might not be in the right place or doing the right thing for that extent of time. In my playthroughs, I feel like the bulk of my time was spent just driving around. Secondly, this is the definition of frustrating Sierra Adventure Game arcade sequences. The driving controls are unforgiving. Blow a red light? Well, you disobeyed the law. Game over. Turn at the wrong time and hit the curb? Boom. Your car blows up and you are dead. Game over. The road is only very slightly wider than your car is long. So when you turn, 
You have about a tenth of a second to correct yourself if you've done it at the wrong time. That <laughs> the second you get into your car, you need to save your game. Otherwise, you will be repeating these driving sequences very, very often. You go to my video playthrough and uh, look at the first time I got in the car. I think I had to redo that section about 10 times. I may have cut it, but I don't think I did. So, you know, it's a, it's a frustrating portion of what is otherwise a, a fairly deep and complex game for the time. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Focus time. Much like other Sierra Adventure games of the late 80s, Police Quest ran on Sierra's Adventure Game Interpreter, or AGI, engine. This game engine was originally designed for the first King's Quest, which we discussed way back in episode 23. For the vast majority of its life, AGI supported graphics at 160 by 200 with a depth of 16 colors. I believe there was one game right at the end of AGI's life where they upgraded it to 320 by 200, but uh, for the bulk of them, 160 by 200 and Police Quest in Pursuit of the Death Angel ran at this resolution. So music and sound were, of course, handled via a PC speaker. The music of Police Quest 1 was credited to Margaret Lowe, Al Lowe's wife. She contributed musically to this game in addition to King's Quest 3 and a variety of other Sierra projects. Aside from that, Police Quest was a very, shall we say, standard Sierra AGI game. One standout feature, as we just talked about in gameplay, was the top-down map view of Lytton. So in this view, you had the ability to basically free roam the town's streets. I mentioned it in my video research of the first game, but I feel like the developer or developers that built up this portion of the game should have been immensely proud of themselves. Well, it's very simplistic by today's standards and very frustrating by today's standards as well, and I'm sure by 1987 standards, that driving view contained a grid of roads, it contained traffic signals, a highway with entrances and exits, and cars on it that behaved like cars should. They drive on the right side of the road, unless you live in the UK, but so and then they'd be driving on the wrong side of the road, but for the environment, they're driving properly on the right side of the road. They stop at red lights. They do everything that cars in a town should do. Traffic-based story events can occur anywhere on the map. It's actually a very well bit done of programming. Is it a great gameplay mechanic? Well, as I said, if you watch the video, you'll see how many times I crash. So it is definitely frustrating from that angle. But from a technical perspective alone, it was a very cool, if simple, simulation embedded within the larger traditional AGI game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, the Police Quest series was the brainchild of Jim Walls. Unlike most of the other game designers we've discussed thus far, Jim came to the gaming industry in a somewhat, shall we say, circuitous route. So Jim is a California boy through and through, spending his childhood and early teenage years around the East Bay towns of Richmond, Berkeley, and El Cerrito. He'd spend summers in Fresno with his grandparents. It was on those summer stays he'd occasionally make day trips over to Oakhurst and Bass Lake. He fell in love with the area. Little did he know at the time, but Oakhurst, California would play a very important role in his adult life as well as it would end up being the headquarters of Sierra Online. So Jim didn't begin his career in computer science, nor did he even begin his career in the police force. He began his professional life as an optician. That is someone who designs and manufactures lenses, eyeglasses, and other ophthalmological devices. He spent a few years working in labs for various optometrists and ophthalmologists. He was still doing this without a second thought in 1969. 
That year, at some social event or another, he met the husband of one of his co-workers who was in his final week of the California Highway Patrol Academy. Jim spoke with this man, and uh, you know he was so enthusiastic and positive about his new career in law enforcement that he effectively recruited Jim on the spot. He very quickly applied to the CHP Academy as soon as he could, and he was accepted. To make a long story short, we jump from 69 to December of 1971, where newly minted California Highway Patrolman James Walls graduates the academy and hits the highways of California. Now, his first station was in, Southern, was in the Southern California town of Van Nuys. So Jim would serve as a highway patrol officer for the next 13 years, serving at various cities and towns throughout the large state of California. Jim's intention was to be a police officer for the rest of his working life. Well, as many things do in life, uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. In January of 1984, Jim made a standard traffic enforcement stop. Well, the stop turned out to be anything but standard. So it turns out that he had stopped a parolee who was just a little bit too twitchy. A shootout ensued, and while I can't find details of exactly what happened... It's simple enough to conclude that in this shootout, Jim sustained an injury. He would continue to serve with the CHP for another year. As it turns out, California Highway Patrol can take up to a year to evaluate the physical condition of officers injured, uh, injured on the job. Well, Jim started experiencing some complications, which his superiors deemed related to that shootout that he was involved in. He was placed on administrative leave pending a final evaluation of his condition. It was during this administrative leave that he met Ken Williams, founder and president of Sierra Online. So Jim's wife, Donna, worked as a hairstylist at a salon in Oakhurst, and, uh, and Ken would occasionally end up in her chair for a trim of his hair and potentially his big, bushy mustache. During one of these sessions... Their conversation wandered into Ken's desire to build a police procedural type adventure game. He also mentioned that he'd be very interested in having an actual police officer involved in the design. Knowing Donna's husband was a cop, he handed her his card and said Jim should give him a call. Since Jim's future with the CHP was looking uncertain, he decided to take Ken up on his offer. They arranged a meeting at Ken's house to play a few rounds of racquetball. Now, Jim says that he had played a lot of handball uh, up until that time, and he figured racquetball couldn't be too much different. Well, after a thorough pummeling by Williams, uh, <laughs> Ken was convinced otherwise. But that aside, they moved their meeting into uh, Ken's games room, and uh, Ken pitched to him the idea for uh, his police game over some drinks. So what Williams wanted was pretty simple. He wanted Jim to take some of his experiences as a CHP officer and distill them, and distill them down into a, a two-page short story. Well, turns out that that wasn't too much of a problem. After a few days, they met again. Ken read the two-page document, made some comments, and then he asked Jim if he could now go home and expand this two-page short story into a four- or five-page story. Again, Jim did it. This process continued until the full story for Police Quest in Pursuit of the Death Angel was complete. The story was then converted into a design document and the work could really begin. This is where Jim really began to feel like a fish out of water. His life for the past 15 years was about running down and arresting bad guys, not designing games. Heck, not even really using a computer. Jim himself states that the, the first few drafts of the game, at least of the game's story, were done pecking the keyboard with two fingers. He didn't even know which way the up button or the, the power button was supposed to go. So suffice it to say, Jim was a bit nervous going into this process. He sat down with Ken once they had decided that to go ahead with the game and asked him flat out if he could really make a living doing this. Of course, Ken said yes. Now, Jim had been doing aptitude testing with the police force to determine which direction his CHP-backed career retraining would take. They concluded that he was adept with electronics, and uh, he could retrain in that direction, perhaps eventually becoming an electrician of some type. However, if he decided to forego that training and take the job with Sierra, that option was gone out the window. He either took it at that point, or he never had the opportunity again. 
So despite his misgivings, he threw in with Sierra. As time went on, he became more comfortable with the technology, tools, and processes of software design. Uh, he credits his Sierra co-workers, Roberta Williams, Scott Murphy, Mark Froh, and Al Lowe, uh, for helping him through the design process. In fact, Scott Murphy and Al Lowe are credited as uh, programmers on the game. Mark Froh has an artist credit. Uh, you know, At this time, 1987, I think uh, King's Quest came out a year or two before, and uh, the Sierra team wasn't very big. So most of the staff worked on multiple games. So you don't just look at Mark Crow and say, oh yeah, he worked on Space Quest. No, he basically worked on most of the games from this time. He's just most well known for Space Quest. So Police Quest in Pursuit of the Death Angel uh, released to great reviews. Walls started receiving fan mail, not only from kids and gamers, but from active duty police officers praising the game's realism. Now, some reviewers didn't appreciate the departure from uh, traditional adventure game style puzzles, saying the mundane police work was dry, but honestly, those were really in the minority. There are claims that some police academies and police departments uh, use the game for training purposes, but the only source on that that I could actually find came out of Interaction, which was Sierra's self-published gaming magazine. So Sierra talking about the uh, the training uses of their own game is fairly questionable, so I don't know if I really believe it or not. But regardless of all that, Police Quest came out and people liked it. This, of course, led to a sequel, Police Quest II The Vengeance, released one year later in 1988. In Police Quest 2, we return to Lytton and Sonny Bonds, who uh, is explicably now blonde as opposed to black-haired as he was in the original. So after arresting Jesse Baines in the first game, Bonds is promoted to the Homicide Division. He begins dating Marie Wilkins, a former prostitute and his high school sweetheart, whom we met partway through, uh, partway through the first game. Her record of prostitution has been expunged thanks to her assistance in uh, in the Baines case. So all is well in Lytton. All is well, that is, until Baines returns for a retrial. Very early on in the game, we find out that Baines escapes from prison, taking a guard hostage uh, with a makeshift knife, or a shiv, if you will. So Bonds and his homicide partner, Keith Robinson, are tasked with tracking down Baines. This leads Sonny into a manhunt, which will endanger both his life and Marie's. In the final showdown with Baines, your actions dictate two different endings. So Police Quest 2 was definitely a technical upgrade over the first game. Like King's Quest 4 and Space Quest 3, Police Quest 2 used the new SCI, or Sierra's Creative Interpreter Engine, where AGI scripting was procedural, that is, all the programming was encapsulated in sequentially executed procedures, SCI was object oriented. Now, I'm pretty sure I've discussed procedural versus object-oriented programming before. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure I talked about it in the King's Quest episode, so I won't go into too much detail here, but suffice it to say that in procedural programming, there was a lot of copying and pasting of code. You couldn't really reuse the same code in many different places, and the procedures weren't very smart. If you called them uh, they just executed the instructions inside them. They didn't know anything about themselves. All they knew was that they were a procedure. With SCI, we came to an object-oriented system. So game functionality was now stored in classes which spawned objects. Those objects knew what they were and could behave in an intelligent way. So a car class knew it was a car. It knew it had doors, a trunk, it can move in a certain way. By giving the car class properties, a specific instance of the car class could be created. This is known as an object. So say this specific car object had two doors, was green, and can travel at 65 miles per hour. That's one car. Many other cars could be easily instantiated from that same class. This made code reuse much easier. 
And that's at least the second time I've done intro to object-oriented programming on this show. If you guys want college credit, uh, send me some money. I don't know, whatever. Uh, so PQ2 was built on uh, the engine version SCI0, which was the original version of the engine. Uh, it upped the graphics fidelity of the first game from 160 by 200 at 16 colors to 320 by 200 at 16 colors. This allowed for much more detail in both backgrounds and character sprites. Also, while SCI0 supported the mouse, pathfinding wasn't very good, so movement was still primarily handled via the keyboard, uh, the arrow keys, and interactions with objects were handled uh, by a much more advanced text parser. So graphics, interface, and programming paradigm aside, I feel like the biggest change that SCI brought was support for sound cards. So the bleeps and bloops of the PC speaker were replaced by a great score by the man who would eventually become a Sierra music director, Mark Siebert. The improved graphics and music really made the game a much richer and deeper experience than the original. Now, one thing they may have gone a bit too far with was uh, the point sound, I guess you can call it, the point chime. So most Sierra games had a chime or some other kind of very short dinging notification whenever you did something right and got some points. Now, in Police Quest 2, the sound was this. <laughs> so just remember, every time you get a point in the game, you hear that sound, which means you hear it a lot. And every time I heard it, it makes me laugh. So, you know, it's kind of like... Take your gun out of your locker. Take your briefcase out of your locker. And you know, it just keeps going on and on and it just, I don't know, I felt like I was in Miami Vice or something. So Jim Walls says the design theme uh, was consistent from between the first game and the second game. The goal was to solve the case by using proper police procedure. Since Sonny was now a member of the Homicide Division, the game dispensed with the traffic cop aspects of the first game and focused much more on proper detective work and proper forensics. Many of the game's puzzles focus on proper handling and gathering of evidence. So while the first game may have been an episode of Chips or some cops or something like that, the second game was an episode of CSI. Also, just like in the first game, the situations presented were pulled from Jim's career. Baines's escape, though, was modeled on a similar situation that was occurring around the time was the, the game was being developed. A, a parolee or a, a, a prisoner escaped on the way to retrial, etc., etc. Now, one thing I will say here is a very nice change from the first game was that the driving element was completely eliminated. In Police Quest 2, you simply typed where to go into the parser, so I don't know, drive to mall, and uh, Sonny would drive there automatically. Car rides were now used for dialogue and story exposition as opposed to frustration and crashing. So Police Quest II released in 1988 two great reviews. It was well-paced, contained a decent amount of action, and minimized the mundane and repetitive aspects of the original game. This led us to Police Quest III, The Kindred, in 1991. Since the events of Police Quest 2, I believe a few years have passed. I think Police Quest, the years in the Police Quest games, actually, this is probably something I should mention, are, are vague, at least the years in the first game. If you go and look at details in the first game, you can basically say the game takes place somewhere between 1983 and 1987. And even in the second game, they refer to the events of the first game as taking place in inconsistent years. They say multiple years in different places. That said, we're told that the events in Police Quest 2 take place in 1988, the year the game came out, and the events in Police Quest 3 take place a few years later in 1991, the year that game came out. So, 
Since the events of PQ2, Sonny and Marie have gotten married, and Sonny has been promoted to the rank of Detective Sergeant. Now, Lytton has expanded from a little sleepy town into a full-fledged city, with an increased crime rate to match. Marie is stabbed at the beginning of the game, and Sonny is assigned to investigate the crime, which I feel is a little bit of a conflict of interest, but you know what, let's go with it. Uh, over the course of the game, he has to deal with a cocaine cartel operating in Lytton, a satanic cult, a corrupt partner, and finally, the appearance of Michael Baines, the brother of Jesse, who, let's say something happened to him at the climax of the previous game, not to, uh, not to reveal any big spoilers. So Police Quest 3 was built on the SCI-1 engine. The main improvement over SCI-0 was support for full VGA graphics at 320 x 200 at 256 colors. In addition, Police Quest 3 was the first in the series to sport a full mouse-driven interface using what we would come to know as Sierra's kind of standard action bar and icons and uh, an interface. Since Sunny begins the game assigned back to traffic duty temporarily, the driving is back, hooray! However, the driving minigame in Police Quest 3 is much more streamlined than in the original though the drive around until something happens mechanic does make a return. Driving also contains one form of the game's, uh, I guess we can call it manual-based copy protection. So the manual comes with a map of Lytton, which makes driving around much, much easier. Another aspect of the game's copy protection comes when you bring someone to jail. You need to provide a, a felony code. It's a numeric, I think a five-digit numeric code, which is again listed in the manual to properly complete the booking process. So, you know, this is another one of those examples of, uh, of I guess we can call it early 90s game copy protection where, you know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have anything like that. If, uh, if you found the game at some store somewhere, they probably didn't have the manual and you couldn't, uh, you couldn't complete some critical portion of the game because you needed info out of the manual. What I always did, I got the game from my friend. My mom was a teacher, or is a teacher still. And uh, you know, I'd give her the manual and ask her if she could photocopy it for me, which she did because I don't know if she really knew much, either didn't care about piracy or said, hey, we're gonna get a game for him and he'll shut up, <laughs> but, uh, and it won't cost money. But uh, you know, I do realize that's wrong now. But uh, all that aside, I guess obviously these days with the internet, you just Google PQ3 map or PQ3 felony codes, and uh, and you're good to go. Also, the GOG versions, which I'll talk about later, come with PDFs of the manual, which I had up on my iPad while I was playing and all that noise. So, anyways. So, late into the development of Police Quest 3, for reasons that, again, I haven't been unable, I haven't been able to uncover. It seems like Jim Walls, when it comes to his professional uh, issues, is uh, is definitely closed-lipped. Close uh Jim Walls ended up leaving Sierra for a company named Tsunami Media. Now, Tsunami Media was basically a company that was filled with uh, with former Sierra employees, and it actually took over the uh, the old red building that uh, Sierra originally started in, in, in Oakhurst. So because of this departure, at a fairly critical point in the development, uh, Jane Jensen ended up filling in and finalizing the story and the writing for Police Quest Three. Now, this may be, because I didn't actually know this at the time. I guess I wasn't paying very close attention to the uh, to the credits. But uh, that might be why I always personally felt that the story of this third game was much more poignant and well-told than in the previous titles. You know, Jane, Jane Jensen with Gabriel Knight and and other games that she worked on. You could tell she's she's a very, very good writer. And I think that really came across in the game. So PQ3 released in 1991 to good reviews though there were some complaints about the long about long load times and uh, persnickety mouse controls on uh, on the PC. So Jim Walls would go on to do his own thing and, uh, and release Blue Force with Tsunami in 1992. His next shipped game would only come out in 1996, but it was the amazing Blade Runner by Westwood Studios that I will certainly cover one of these days. I actually, I might have known this in the past, but it totally blew my mind or uh, <laughs> slipped my mind that Jim Walls worked on that really well done game. So one year later, in 1992, the original Police Quest in Pursuit of the Death Angel was remade in the slightly more advanced SCI 1.1 engine. Uh, it dispensed with, the, dispensed with the parser interface and brought 
the game's technology to effectively the same level, if not a little better, than that of Police Quest 3. Of course, some of the puzzles and the mechanics had to be changed to suit the point-and-click interface over the parser. Uh, in addition, for some strange reason, some character names were changed and art was changed, hair colors and, and things like that. Now, this version of the original game was also the first in the series not to contain any of Sierra's infamous game-ending dead ends, which would you know cause you to have to revert to a much earlier save to perform some action or get some item that you need much later in the game and just didn't know at the time. Remakes aside, Sierra wanted to make more police quest, and Jim Walls was no longer with them. So Sierra hired, ended up hiring a former LAPD police chief, Daryl F. Gates, to produce the next game in the series. And what a different game it was. Daryl F. Gates's Police Quest open season was a realistic, gritty game. Gone was the idyllic city of Lytton. This game takes place in LA. Backgrounds in the game were not fictional. They were digital photos of real locations in LA, including South Central and Parker Center, which is LAPD headquarters. John, let me warn you. It's bad. Real bad. It's Hickman. Hickman? Bob Hickman? He's been badly mutilated, John. Tortured, really. My God, Sam. Has Bob's wife, Catherine, been informed? When the call came in, I was told Hickman's captain was headed to their house. They have a little girl, don't they? Yeah. Valerie. Her name is Valerie. Look, John, I know you and Bob went back a long way. A long way? Hell, Sam, Bob and I went through the academy together. We shared a ride for five years. I'm that little girl's godfather. Sam, Bob was my best friend. Yeah, yeah, you could say we went back a long way. I'm sorry, John, I... Yeah, I'm sorry, too. Sorry the city is so full of dirtbags, creeps, and losers. Bob was a great guy, Sam. A great cop. What the hell would do this to him? What the hell was he doing out there? I don't know, John. It's your job to find out. My job is to pick up the body and find the cause of death. So, you play Detective John Carey. That's John Carey, not John Carey, the the politician, or I guess former politician. Uh, As you just heard, your partner has been murdered along with an eight-year-old boy down in South Central L.A., This begins a string of five murders across Los Angeles, uh, and through proper detective work, Carrie eventually tracks down the serial killer. As I've mentioned, this game was much darker and much grittier than previous titles. Scenes you encounter can be pretty gruesome. The killer is loosely based on Jeffrey Dahmer, who was known for keeping parts of his victims in his house. Let's say that might happen in the game. Uh, So the game released in 1993, and in 1996, a CD version with full speech was released as well. That's the uh, the version that I pulled that intro audio from. Now, technically, there are two other games in the Police Quest series, SWAT and SWAT 2. I'm going to leave these out of the show since those two games ended up spawning a new series, which SWAT 3 and SWAT 4 were included in. So it's a little bit confusing. SWAT 1 and SWAT 2 are considered part of the Daryl F. Gates Police Quest series, and then SWAT 3 and SWAT 4 are considered part of the SWAT series. Uh... Also, these are more tactical sims than adventure games. I'm going to cover all four SWAT games on their own sometime in the future. So that's that for the older games. Does the future hold anything for the Police Quest series? Well, kind of, I guess. Back in August of 2013, Jim Walls launched a Kickstarter for a game that he was calling Precinct. It was to be a spiritual successor to Police Quest. Sadly, the game wasn't on track to fund and the campaign was cancelled. It was then announced that the team would bypass Kickstarter creating their own unique and amazing funding model. As they reached funding goals, much lower funding goals, they'd build small portions of the game. So for $25,000, they'd build a small prototype. For $50,000, they'd do something else. And, uh, you know, it all seemed like a pretty cool idea, sort of, maybe. But uh, it appears that now when I go to the funding site, uh, I get a database connection error. So I think we can safely assume that uh, this method didn't work out very well. So for the moment, it looks like the project is dead. But you never know. I'll keep my ears open and let 
all of you know if anything comes up. And as you always do, if you guys hear anything, please feel free to let me know. Drop me a line on the Facebook group or at podcast at umbcast.com or at Twitter. There's lots and lots of ways to, uh, to get me info. So where can we get the previous Police Quest games today? Well, the first four games can be purchased as a collection from GOG.com for $4.99 US. This is a, uh, I guess, a slightly GOG modified version uh, of, uh, of I guess, the uh, the Police Quest collection that came out back in the uh, either the late 90s or the early 2000s. Uh, they're all DOSBox installs and work just fine on my Win81 machine. There's only two little issues I ran into. The first one's in the first game, and that's when you try and load the inventory screen. Uh, the UI, the UI kind of goes crazy. Closing the screen fixes it. It's a very small issue, and it seems to happen on all Sierra AGI games in DOSBox. So not a huge deal. You don't generally have to go into the inventory screen. It's just a listing of stuff that you have. Uh, the second issue is despite the fact that GOG is supposed to be DRM free and all that stuff, they usually do find a way to strip out the copy protection from uh, games that they sell, but the copy protection for Police Quest 2 is intact for some reason. So uh, what you have to do there is at the beginning of the game, it'll show you a photo of some felon and uh, you have to basically type in his last name, I believe, to uh, or their last name, there are also women, to... Uh, to get into the game, to get the game to start. But aside from that, games work quite well. The copy protection issue isn't really a tech issue. You get the manual anyways, it's just kind of irritating. Hello, I'm Dan. Are you into computers, gadgets, gaming, and other digital geekery? Looking for a new show that follows its own beats? Then consider giving Technocratic a try. Hi, this is Tim. Technocratic Chronicles are interested in computers, digital media, entertainment, and much more. Of course, our journey is not without its bumps in the roads or occasional rants from myself. We cover some news and focus on a topic in technology that we've been using. We occasionally talk with guests about how they are using technology in their day-to-day -day lives. So, if any of this interests you, come and check us out at dangelous.com. That's D-A-N-G-E-L-U-S dot com. And then click on the Technocratic link. You can also find Technocratic on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and your favorite podcast service. So, if you find yourself ruled by your technology, be technocratic. Okay, a few more emails this time around. You guys had a lot to say this week, and I love that. So first, we have an email from Andreas. He writes, Hi Joe. You really do like your adventure games. I was never into those, unlike you. I happen to really dig horror and FPS titles. I did, however, play Police Quest 2. Unfortunately, I never made it very far. To this day, I still have never figured out what the combination for Sonny Bonds' locker is. I've seen Let's Plays on YouTube that open the locker, but they don't show where you get the combination. I hope you will finally solve that mystery for me. Without that combination, there were two ways in which I remember Police Quest. One was walking and driving around, trying to find locations I could go and stuff I could do uh, at them until Jesse Baines finally killed me to death because I couldn't shoot back because my gun was in my locker. Uh, the other was typing random profanities into the text parser and unsuccessfully trying to get Bonds to do stuff to the female characters that you probably shouldn't read out loud on the show. I guess that's what happens when you give a text parser to a teenage boy. I think I would have loved the Leisure Suit Larry games, but I never played those. Now, if you ex you'll excuse me, I need to go listen to the Quake 2 soundtrack because I just mentioned the letters FPS in this mail. Well, thank you, Andreas. And um, if you go watch the video, I think you, you did respond to me already, but uh, I did show you where you get that combination right on the first screen. It's, it's in there. First screen of the game where you get to do stuff. That combination is there somewhere and you now know where it is. So maybe you should go back and, uh, and give that a whirl. And next, we have another email from Brian. He was uh, pretty busy this week. He writes, Joe, sorry for the two comments in one day, but after watching your live stream of Police Quest 1, I realized that my experience playing classic adventure games as a kid was very different from your stream playthrough. I never had any of the adventure games myself. I always played them with my friends at their house. Okay, I watched while they played, but we played together, one of us in control, uh, but everyone brainstorming about what to do. We had no game, we had no guides, so we even had to figure out how to type uh, how to type in the solution 
uh, which we had figured out. There was a lot of yelling, try typing this. No, try typing that. So watching you just know exactly what to type every step of the way made you look like a god. Things that took us hours to figure out took you seconds. Did you ever play adventure games with friends like I did? Thanks, Brian, aka HD. Brian, I, Brian, I, you know, I think I mentioned it on those streams, but, um, you know, the point of, of my playthroughs for this is to kind of experience the game and, and get through as much of it as I can. So I most certainly, for these longer adventure games that I don't necessarily remember uh, all the details about, I use a walkthrough. So, you know, I, I may have I may have looked like I knew what I was doing, but I was just reading exactly what to do. And uh, in Police Quest 1, that worked out quite well. In Police Quest 2, even with the walkthrough, I did something horribly wrong. I didn't adjust my gun properly. And uh, and I ended up also getting killed by Jesse Baines. Not because, like Andrea said, my gun was in my locker, but I had a gun, but the sights were off. So no matter how many times I, uh, I tried to shoot him, I would always miss because my sights were off. But uh, yeah, you know, at the time I, I did play adventure games with uh, with friends, you know, exactly like that. We'd, we'd sit around all together with one of us in control, maybe handing off and saying, well, try this, try that. What about combining this item with that item? And, you know, sometimes we, uh, we, we didn't get through things. Sometimes we did. Sometimes we ended up caving and convincing our parents to shell out, which I might have been, you know, 15 or 20 bucks for a hint book, which was ridiculously expensive at the time and still is for, especially for the little tiny Sierra hint books with the little, uh, you guys remember those Sierra hint books? They were like these little tiny booklets and, uh, and they had, they had questions, they had hints in them. And then the answers were behind, they were like, uh, I don't even know how to explain it anymore. You had this red filter thing with like some, uh, like a gel filter and you would, put it over the the big red block and you'd you'd be able to read line by line you'd be able to read the uh, the solution and usually the the solution was in a couple of lines the first one being a fairly straightforward uh, a very vague hint maybe a little sarcastic hint like maybe you should try looking up and then it was slightly more detailed and then the last one was just look at the thing and open the door and whatever and I, you know i thought those were kind of cool they were annoying to use because you couldn't just flip to a page and see what the solution was you had to use the the stupid uh, gel filter thing, but it was pretty cool. Finally, we have a message from Elima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Really looking forward to this PQ episode. I first played the Police Quest games in the 90s when my dad bought the Police Quest collection on CD-ROM. Bet the story is starting to sound familiar. My sister and I were immediately fascinated by this series of adventure games. Maybe it was the predominant theme of law enforcement, I guess. We played through the first game together, teaming up to find sentences the text parser would understand. And we practiced really hard, typing use nightstick as fast as we could. Let's say we got beat up quite a bit by those bikers. I'm actually pretty sure our dad had to intervene and do it for us. I don't think we ever got to the end of the game because a poker game towards the end was a bit beyond our understanding. But we nonetheless enjoyed driving and crashing a lot, just like you. Thankfully, the King's Quest series had already hammered the save early, save often lesson. In Police Quest 2, we got stuck at the airport, unfortunately, so about halfway or two-thirds through the game. Even with our combined mental might, we never realized that Sonny Bonds had to ask the police department to pay for his plane ticket. Whoops. Eventually, I went back and finished it much later, and it seemed a fitting follow-up to the first game. PQ3 was actually my favorite back in the day. Maybe because it was fully mouse-driven, maybe it was the story. It probably helped that you could find most offenders on the highway, the speeding car, the slower car, Thank goodness I used a walkthrough, though, or Marie would probably have died in the hospital due to my inattention. The last game, Police Quest IV, I also played all the way through, but I didn't enjoy it as much as its predecessors. I suspect it had a lot to do with the main character Sonny Bonds being replaced, or maybe it was Jim Walls' departure and Daryl F. Gates' arrival. Who knows? I actually took the time to watch a bit of your streams this time around. I also played a bit of PQ on VGA. Uh, it was really interesting to note the differences between the AGI and VGA versions. In the first one, Sonny Bonds is raven-haired. He's dirty blonde in the VGA version. Same goes for Marie. A Cadillac turns into a Mercedes. Hoochie Coochie Hannah, the dancer hired for a fellow cop's birthday, is renamed Kaylee and uh, swaps her grass skirt for a maid's outfit. Speeding brunette Helen Hotz is renamed Tawny and also dyes her hair from midnight black to blonde. I found these differences between the 1987 version and the 1992 version fascinating. Anyhow, I've gone on long enough. 
I'm uh, looking forward to your opinion on the series since I can't seem to decide if they still hold up or not. Uh, thanks a bunch for the podcast, Elima slash Emily. Well, thank you, Emily. And, you know, I did mention those differences and, and, and that is weird. I don't know if they got, maybe they got different uh, artists on the team and, um, you know, they had different aesthetics or maybe, you know, they thought that the look from 1987 was going to look to 80s and the look in 1992 was, you know, much more sophisticated or whatever. So, uh, you know, great. And thank you for that. And, um, you know, I guess we'll find out if, uh, if the games hold up very, very shortly. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So I won't leave Alima hanging. Uh, big question to the show. Does Police Quest hold up today? Well, before I get to that, other people got to tell you their Police Quest stories, and I will now tell you mine. I actually didn't even remember this until maybe a day or two ago when I was kind of thinking about my, my verdict here. I'm fairly certain when I think real hard that Police Quest 1 was the first Sierra adventure game that I ever saw, and I didn't know what I was seeing when I saw it. I'm pretty sure it was, it was 1987 or 1988, and I was at my cousin's house. Now, my mom has eight siblings, and, and she's the youngest, so most of my cousins on that side of the family were much older than me. Uh, I was all over at my Uncle Mike's house with my parents and my brother, and we were hanging around with my cousins Gino and Tony. Yes, I'm Italian, and I have a cousin named Gino, and he has a brother named Tony. Get over it. My older brother and them were, were hanging out around their turntables. Yes, Gino and Tony were also DJs, and yes, I know that's generic. Uh, so they kind of stuck six- or seven-year-old me on the computer with, uh, with a joystick and made me play Tapper. You know, Tapper is the game where, where you serve beer to thirsty bar patrons. I played that for a little bit, and I started getting a little bored. Eventually, though, they kicked me off the computer to show my brother another game that they figured I was too young to play. At the time, I didn't know it, but that was Police Quest 1. I was fascinated, and I couldn't understand why I hadn't been playing this game. I got to stand behind them and kind of look on while they basically ignored me. Uh, you know, you were a cop. You got to drive around a police car. You got to bust bad guys. You got, you got a gun. I mean, this was awesome. This was way better than serving beer to people in a bar. Eventually, though, I did get my hands on the game, and it was much harder to play on my own, and I definitely am pretty sure that at least my first playthrough, I did not finish it. PQ3, a couple years later, was, was the next one I came across, and I fell in love with that game. In fact, I used the storyline of Police Quest 3 for an elementary school composition where we had to write a police story. Uh, so since I basically ripped off Jane Jensen at the end of the day, I ended up getting a pretty good mark. Clearly, my teacher wasn't a gamer, or she might have figured out that uh, the story did not originate in my uh, maybe eight or nine or ten-year-old brain. Now, I also remember enjoying Police Quest 4, but I was older, and it wasn't quite the same. I missed Sunny, and I missed Lytton. LA was cool, but the game was a bit too dark for me. So, with all that in mind, do I recommend Police Quest? Sure I do, with some caveats. As relevant as the first game is, the driving stuff is way too frustrating for me to truly recommend it. If you want to get the story and experience the first game, play the VGA version. It also comes in that GOG package along with the, the original one. PQ2, well, it's, it still looks a little bit dated because of the 16 colors and all that. It's actually a very well thought out game. I don't necessarily agree, but many say that it is actually the best game of the series. Just remember to properly adjust your gun right at the beginning of the game. Police Quest 3, I can heartily recommend. It's a great game with a great story. It deserves a playthrough. In my opinion, that one is the best of the series. As I said above, 4 is a fine game. I just don't like it as much as I like the Jim Walls games. So maybe it's a mixed recommend. It's a pseudo recommend, but that's my opinion. Play through them if, you, if, if you're interested in police procedural and, and stuff like that. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, seems like forever ago that I announced this, but we have a winner for the 7th Guest and the 11th Hour Bundle giveaway, and it is Mike Winder. Congrats. I hope you enjoy the games. I will fire them off to you on Steam, and uh, congratulations again. We will do uh, some more game giveaways in, uh, in the coming episodes. Maybe the next one, maybe the one after. We'll see how I feel and if I remember. So that's it for another show. Thanks, as always, to everyone who contributed this time around. 
Next time, we're going to go back to a genre we haven't discussed in a while, combat flight sims. We're going to look at Lawrence Holland's early LucasArts work with Battlehawks 1942, Their Finest Hour, and Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe. It'll be fun to, to, to fly around in World War II and, uh, and have some fun see, uh, see the genesis of, of X-Wing and what came out of that. So, as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find us on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast, where I started putting up some uh, some partial playthrough videos. I'm having tons of fun doing those, getting some good responses. So uh, I'm going to keep doing it. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews there, be it on the Canadian store, the American store, the British store, the French store, whatever you'd like. Leave me some reviews. I really do appreciate it. So that's that. And we will see you next time for some LucasArts flight simulators here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.